Okie dokie, and we're live. Larry, how you doing? Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a weird thing having the pre-chat and then going straight into it. It's a, there's a bit of a, yeah, it's a bit odd. Uh, introduce yourself, tell people what you're about. Okay, so my name's Larry, Larry Culliford, Dr. Larry Culliford. Uh, I trained as a doctor in Cambridge and at Guy's Hospital in London. Uh, and then I traveled to New Zealand uh, and to Australia. I was uh, in New Zealand a year, six years in Australia, and started training in psychiatry, became a psychiatrist, uh, became a qualified psychiatrist on my return to the United Kingdom back in the uh, 1980s, uh, and uh, worked until 2007 as a consultant psychiatrist in Brighton, and I live in West Sussex. And um, uh, I should like to say that uh, very early on, I got fascinated by the question, what is mental health? Because at medical school, we were taught about physical health, a healthy body, anatomy and physiology, and then about sickness, about pathology, and then about treatment. But it was different in psychiatry. We got pitched straight into psychopathology mental illness, schizophrenia, depression, and so on, addictions, and so on. Um, and I don't think anybody really tried to teach us what is mental health. So I was pondering about this back in the 70s and uh, started to write uh, for my own benefit uh, to clarify my thoughts and uh, fairly early on decided that... Um, I needed to think in terms of five dimensions of health. So a physical, well, a physical, five dimensions of, of human uh, understanding, that's to say, human experience and understanding. So physical uh, dimension, uh, energy and matter, physics and chemistry. Uh, and then um, uh Biology, organisms, organs, organisms, life, uh, psychology, the mental uh, processes, thinking, feeling, impulses, and so on. Sociology, the social dimension, relationships and communities, and the spiritual dimension. And this is yeah. where I kind of ste stepped aside from the tradition that I was being taught in very sort of science, evidence-based practice. So I started on... Um, you know, as I say, a long time ago, investigating the spiritual dimension. I had a background in, you know, Christian upbringing. Uh, but by that stage, I wasn't active in my religious practice. Anyway, but I was very open-minded. And uh, and uh, I, uh, the opportunity arose for me to spend time with Tibetan Buddhist monks in Australia, in Melbourne. And they taught me several things. They taught me about um, they taught me how to meditate, which is basically to sit still and silent yeah. and focus your mind. Uh, and I've been doing that pretty much ever since. And they taught me about Tibetan Buddhist psychology, which is a spiritual psychology, uh, specifically about something called Tibetan thought transformation, which allows you in meditation to observe your thoughts and feelings and the impulses that arise and watch them as they then diminish in strength and go away and maybe change into other things. Um, so that it not only uh, is a pathway to self-development, it's, it's quite like 
cognitive behavioral, uh, uh, sorry, mindfulness-based cognitive behavior therapy. Yeah. It's a bit like that, but it's aimed towards self-development, self-improvement, not symptom reduction. So, oh, okay, um, yeah. Yeah, to get that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Just pitch in and ask if you, if I no, you no, know, I, don't make any sense or haven't followed me because... Um, but anyway, so this was really quite uh, important for me in a very early uh, time in my life and my career. Uh, I was sort of in my mid to late 20s, early 30s. And, um, uh, and so I was following up this idea of a spiritual dimension. And uh, um, it, it, the next kind of area that got me interested was the um, notion of what we call developmental psychology. So developmental psychologist means that uh, people have worked out that there are generally stages of life that people go through or different uh, aspects of uh, living that you kind of have to, um, everybody kind of contends with and goes through. Although, uh, to, and, and the path is towards what I call wisdom, or you could say spiritual maturity. So a path to uh, wisdom or spiritual maturity. And um, I, I don't know how much detail you'd like me to go into about this, but I could I guess gave a, a webinar talk the other day uh, to a psychology conference, and um, you know I could talk <laughs> for a long time about that. Larry, to be honest, I'd I'd love you to talk for hours. Honestly, I've got all the time in the world for this. Like I said uh, at the start, it might it may be an hour. We could go two or three hours if you want. I'm uh, uh, as you know, I'm currently a student of psychology. So you being in it for right. years, you're you're sort of um. um you're sort of opening the door a little faster than what they do at uni. Uni's a bit uh, like I'm doing my undergrad, so it's a little bit restrictive and right. uh, it's you know right. obviously very basic. So uh, you doing it for years gives me a lot more insight to to the actual the application of uh, psychology in the real world, and then what you've taken from it and adapted to you know certain yeah. other things like spirituality and stuff. So if you wanna if you wanna go, I'm this is this is definitely going to be a one that I'm going to have to watch back a few times to uh, to absorb everything you say. Uh, okay, and, and if I drift off a little bit, it's just my brain trying to process all the uh, the information. Um, I, I guess just in terms of, like, let's create a bit of a uh, like a, a timeline, a bit of a storyline. Like, what when did when did you start your your degree, and what why did you start your degree as well? <laughs> like what got you into right, psychology to question. start off with? Uh, which degree? My medical degree, my psychiatry training. Which one? what one did you? What one did you start with? Well, let's say let's say I I, I was a, as a schoolboy, uh, age about sixteen. Yep. I knew I was going to become a doctor. You know, like yep. it's a vocation, if you like. I had a kind of intuition that that was the path I was supposed to travel. I was good at biology. I loved it, and uh, it seemed you know, a natural progression to go from uh, to, into the studying biology to um, A-level uh, level and so on. And then um, uh, luckily, uh, my love of biology, fascination with um, genetics and evolutionary theory and so on, um, it slightly outstripped my love of physics and chemistry, which are the other subjects I was studying. But um, anyway, I got a place at Cambridge to read uh, medicine. So that was terrific. Yeah. Now, the, the path to psychiatry was also, I would say, providential. Um, so I'd done my um, uh, degree and I was doing my first year in what we call house jobs. Um, 
in London, which you have to do before you get full qualification. And I was in the middle of the second one of those thinking, well, what am I going to do next? You know, I wasn't really clear in my mind what to do. Um, and I thought, well, I'll travel. You know, I'd done quite a bit of traveling as a student and uh, thought, well, I'll travel. And so I applied for various jobs and I got appointed to a post in uh, the North Island of New Zealand, yeah. a surgical post. Um, and after a few weeks there, I was, I was a little bit unhappy. Um, clashes with my boss and personality clashes and things like that. Yeah. So it happened that a friend of mine was down in South Island in Christchurch. And we spoke on the phone and he said, I'll see if there's work available for you here. I had a one-year visa only. So to cut a long story short, there was work, but uh, there was no choice about it. It was in psychiatry. It was a psychiatry training post in, in Christchurch. And uh, I went down and did, did that. I spent six months uh, doing that. And it was an eye-opener for me. It was also quite stressful. I mean, it opened up stuff about my own family background and stuff like that. I mean, there I was, oh, the so. other side of the world, as far away as I could get from my dysfunctional family and having right. to actually face the issues, you know. But that was good. It worked uh, very well for me. Anyway, then at the end of that, year uh, the, the six months of training in psychiatry i still wasn't sure what to do but i had a australian resident permit which i'd managed to obtain and i went over to to um actually first i went to to um, tasmania and worked as a single-handed gp as a locum gp for a couple of months in tassie and then i flew up to sydney where i knew some people and i worked all over sydney in in general practice taking on people's practices for anything up from a week up to a couple of months and um, ended up in uh, one practice in Newtown where the patients were all Greek and they only most of them mm. spoke only Greek yeah and uh, when they worked out that I didn't speak Greek they stopped coming you see oh, really? I, was sitting, I was sitting in this <laughs> in this uh, this office this medical office in Newtown day after day for eight hours with maybe four or five people a day Nobody attending. So yeah. I started writing my, you know, writing stuff. I write, wrote notes for myself and I started writing what, what became a book in the end and trying to answer this question, what is mental health? Yeah. And thinking about, you know, the spirituality stuff like that. So, um, and then um, uh, at the end of a year in Sydney, I, I had, uh, I felt I had to make a decision. Am I going to stay in Australia, go back to England, and am I going to head for general practice properly, or am I going to go back into psychiatry? And um, again, to cut a long story short, uh, I, I ended up in Adelaide uh, training in psychiatry there and did three and a half years there before coming back to complete my education in the UK, take the British qualifying exams, and so on. Been around. Oh, yes. I've had an interesting life. I hope I get the chance to write, you know, some kind of a bio, uh, autobiography or something I think someday. You, you think you're very close to it. You've uh, you definitely got the experience under your belt. So what, what made you wanted to travel? Was it just uh, the, the lack of position that you had when you were in the UK and you were looking for something more? Or, um, or was it something like, yeah, uh, so it was just well, like self-fulfillment we where you were like, I need a little bit more out of life? Well, um it was opportunity, really. Um, we had um, family holidays overseas from you know, Hold on, I think we lost you, Larry. 
Oh no. So traveling, and then when I was Larry, just one sec. Sorry to cut you off, buddy. It's uh, it's getting a bit choppy here. We're uh, I'm not too sure. Let me see if uh, let me see if we're losing any uh any bandwidth here for some reason. Sorry, uh, continue. Um, yeah, we're just uh, you're just dropping out yes, just a little bit there at the start. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear. You. Uh, let's see. Let's see how it goes. We'll see if we can continue on. Clearly, I don't know. There might be. Uh, we might have to. There's a second way around this. We might have to jump on to something else to try and clear it up. I think it just. Might be a bandwidth issue. We're uh, we're running a little slow. Uh, give me one sec. One second, buddy. Yikes, uh, Larry, can you still hear me? I think we're. Uh, I think everything's just dropped. I think we've. Uh, I think we've lost Larry. I can still see you, Larry. Uh, I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. I can sort of hear you. Sorry, it, it must be an internet issue. Uh, I've I've never had this happen, so I'm not sure how to deal with it or fix it. Okay. Um, it may be just a local one here. It we get a, a just once in a while we get a, a problem. Yeah, that's I'm right. I'm taking guitar lessons, and my guitar lesson cut off the other day. Oh, really? You're trying to do uh, guitar lessons yeah. over Zoom? That's uh, that's that'd be something. Technology it's been is working. I've yeah. been doing it for a year now on Zoom. It's it's fine. Hey, how are you going with it? Sorry, I know I know you were telling a, a bit of a story there, but I, I'm. Well, that's uh, okay. I, I used to. People might be interested. I I'm you know about the age of sixty five. I started to learn classical guitar. Yeah, right. Uh, what and, what what um, what made you get into it? Where was the uh, where was the decision where you just sitting there one day and you're like, <laughs> well, guitar my, is the way to go. My 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 wife Sarah uh, started it first. Um, there's a local a teacher and. Um, uh, they were offering, you know, like taster sessions. And my wife had studied the violin when she was young yeah. and then stopped. And she didn't like the violin as much. And so she thought, well, I'll try the guitar. So she was doing lessons for about six months. And I thought, well, that doesn't look so difficult as I thought. <laughs> and she had, yeah, and right. the teacher, I have to tell you, is an absolute darling. She's an angel yeah. and really good. So um, so I, I thought, well, Oh, yeah, and then I was walking down the high street, and in one of the charity shops, there was a guitar for sale for 20 pounds, you see. Perfect. So I went and bought that, and uh, um, then I had the taster sessions, and I've just, just gone from there. It gets its, it gets its uh, hooks into you fairly deeply, the uh, playing a musical instrument it does. It's, uh, I think my first guitar wasn't worth much more. I think mine was like, a, uh, like one from a garage sale. Uh, yeah. My parents bought it for me, and they're like, this is... well." Prove yourself, and then we'll buy something better. It's pretty good. And by the time I had it refurbished and new strings, it's yeah. it's okay. It's really good. Yeah. It's so I'm bad. about five years in now. I'm doing some grade four type stuff. But I've told my teacher I'm not taking any exams. I do not want to take another. Exams are over <laughs> for the rest of your life. I do so. Which I can just. Sorry, you go. No, I was just saying I can learn to play some nice tunes and uh, don't have to worry about the the curriculum, etc. How are the calluses on the fingers? 
Yeah, I, yeah, I, I got them, but um, you know, it's okay. Not that I haven't got. I don't, you know, I play maybe thirty minutes a day or something, yeah. so it's not terrible. Yeah, that's good. Adi, uh, back back to your story. Sorry, that was. Uh, I think it seems right, to be. So I, I forget. What I was saying about something about my father, but I can't remember what the question was. Let's just start from the start. Oh yeah, then. traveling. Yeah, Why the traveling. I started traveling. Okay, so we had these long summer vacations at Cambridge, and um, my parents had separated, and my father had remarried, and uh, you know, it wasn't a good place to be uh, home all that long summer. So I, I'd had the summer before after I left school at home, and. Uh, you know, I thought, well, I can, I can just travel. And um, I had a couple of friends who had this idea that they would travel overland, hitchhike to uh, somewhere like Istanbul. Yeah, right. So I'd never, I'd never hitchhiked a mile before, but I said, I'll come with you, you know. How was and, that? Uh, that, was, that was a two-month uh, ex- uh, exciting time where I, we hitched, took the ferry across to uh, Holland, hitched through Holland and... Uh, Germany and Switzerland, down through Italy, took the boat across uh, to um, to Corfu from uh, Brindisi, and then made our way through Greece and down to um, uh, the island of Rhodes, and from the island of Rhodes up into Turkey and all around wow. Turkey, back through Istanbul and, uh, you know, up through the former Yugoslavia and home. You know, it was a, it was a, an extraordinary, uh, wonderful adventure. And of course, I hadn't got a clue what I was doing, but yeah. a lot of times very good things happened. Um, I kind of began to have faith in um, the benevolence of the universe, if you like, or yeah, uh, doing something like that, you kind of have to, you kind of have to throw it out and hope for the best, right? You have to, yeah. you have to pray yeah. to the universe, and you're like, be gentle. <laughs> yeah, that's a, so, that's, a um, that's a wild so experience. Get, Gained a lot of confidence. I was not a very confident person before that, but it gave me a huge amount of confidence. Yep. And um, then in the following year, I had the opportunity to spend three months in the United States and Canada. And the year after that, with a different uh, traveling companion, I went similarly through um, Europe and Italy and Greece and then to Rhodes and then to uh, the Lebanon and Syria, places that, you know, have all been... I mean, I went to... Um, Palmyra, the city in the desert, for instance, and yeah. and the crack yeah. de Chevalier, the big crusader castle in Syria, and so on. Places that Homs and Hammer, you couldn't, you know, you know they've just been so sh- beaten up now in the Syrian war, etc. Then back through Turkey, and and again up through um, Yug- former Yugoslavia, and so on. I I just think those I was just so lucky to have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, do definitely. That. How old were you? 71. Like when you did all that travel? Last, last week, I was 71. Oh, you've turned 71. No, how old were you when you when you decided to backpack and travel that much? Oh, I see. How old was I? Okay, fine. Um, I was uh, ni- uh, 19 uh, the first time, 20 when I went to America, 1970, the year after the Woodstock Festival. Yep. You know, hippies, we were all hippie. I had tied, tied long hair, yeah, tie dyed jeans, and all <laughs> that. Um, and then the following year, 71, I went to, to Beirut, to Lebanon, and uh, uh, all that. You've, you've, you've really got to write a book about this the life, <laughs> the life of Larry. They'll make it into a movie. Uh, <laughs> it'll be four hours long. Well, I, 
it's quite difficult to get it right, pitch it right with the spiritual, because it's all. It feels like I've been on a spiritual journey as well as a, you know, a kind of um, a journey of adventure and excitement. So it's it'd be quite difficult to to write it and get it right. But yeah, I might do that. I think you should one day. Did um, did this all contribute to where you are now? Like uh, obviously, uh, going through the 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 degrees and the and the courses and the the studying that you went through it is very literal it is very to the fact do you think this yeah. this travel really uh opened your eyes to the spiritual side of things and uh the fact that there is stuff that humans can't explain and there's a there's a little bit more do you think that'll help definitely yeah definitely i i was i have to say i was a lazy student particularly in my three years at Cambridge, I, I think I nearly flunked the first year exams. I'm not quite sure how I managed to get through them at all. <laughs> um, I, I do have a slight excuse in that I was knocked off my bicycle in the first week of my first term at Cambridge. And I think I had a post-concussion syndrome, which was never diagnosed. So I didn't want to get out of bed in the mornings and I got to lectures and fell asleep again, you know, but, uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, I was always, i feel somehow absorbing what I needed to know. And the fact that I wasn't a great student actually was one of the things that probably steered me towards psychiatry because it wasn't a popular subject. You could get into, you know, get good jobs because there were not, not a huge amount of competition. Yeah. Um, and then when I was doing it, I, I just took to it. I, I felt this like empathic link with people. Yeah, with patients, colleagues, and everything, um, and it, uh, you had to learn to manage that. If you had uh, empathy, is you know, is, is is a word that's used a lot, and sometimes gets mixed up with what I would call sympathy. So there's a distinction between the two. Empathy for me is where you literally are feeling what the other person is feeling. You can feel their feelings at the same moment if you're in the same room, or even on a screen. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and then they can feel yours. So this is very good in in psychology, psychotherapy, and psychiatry because uh, you get information about people and you can give it back to them. You can say, "Oh, you seem angry today," or "You seem quite sad." When you tell me about that, and they hadn't completely got that or given names to their feelings, that's helpful. Um, and then that, then they tr they trust you more. They tell you more. You open up. It improves the the you know doctor patient relationship or what you call it, and also you're transmitting to them uh, uh, feelings like confidence, hope, courage, inner strength, calm, equanimity, resilience. If you've developed those in yourself, and I see um, becoming a health professional or many many types of work but particularly um, uh, psychological work as an opportunity to grow as an opportunity to help yourself grow and I, I don't think that's widely canvassed as one of the attractions of the job because um, given that if you if you like for, for uh, from one perspective, um, our lives are about growing and becoming the best kind of people we can, um, becoming, um, uh, well, adopting values like honesty and humility and generosity and kindness. 
patience, perseverance. Well, how do you develop those characteristics if you don't do it through suffering or through adversity? And not only your own suffering, but through sharing the sufferings of others. So uh, mental health, the kind of suffering that people experience during mental health issues is, is pretty extreme. And if you can uh, engage with that suffering um, mindfully, if you like, then uh, it benefits both parties. That's how I've always experienced it. So um, I feel I've always felt great um, respect and gratitude for uh, people who've come to me for help. Uh, and I don't think and that's necessarily a common um, attitude or experience. It's not how people are taught these days, uh, or even we were taught more about um, symptom control, you know, diagnostic, uh, diagno make a diagnosis, apply treatment, and um, uh, try and get results, you know, this sort of results orientated thing, whatever that might mean, reduce bed occupancy and, uh, and so on and so on. Um, so it's a different approach to to the to a profession, and one I take, uh, I've always taken that I'm getting a lot more more out of it, or at least I'm getting as much out of it as ever I can put into it. Yeah, so a bit of given, a uh, bit of give and take. Do you um have you seen it change over the last you know whatever years since you 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 were working in it and now currently like where you stand? Do you think? The whole well, psychology of humanity from, is changing a little bit, or do you think it's still become it's still fairly rigid? It's, it's difficult, you know, to say. Uh, I, I retired from clinical practice and the National Health Service in two thousand seven, and I retired because uh, the organisation had become overly uh, committed to political and financial aims and goals and had forgotten about caregiving and forgotten about taking care of its uh, professional staff, much less its patients. Um, there were some particular issues of which I was trying to counter uh, where I was working, uh, the closure of a particular unit, which as far as I was concerned was exceptionally successful, yeah. um, but it didn't meet the political aims and ambitions of the organization. Uh, and at the same time, it happened that my mother was very sick. She'd just been widowed, and uh, she needed some help. She lived very nearby, and I also wanted to write some more. So I, I left the service then. So ha has it, is it changing, or has it changed? Well, it was true then, and it I'm sure is at least continues to be the case, if not worse, that um, it it becomes almost a sort of I hate to use well jargon phrase tick box exercises yeah. in you know in making diagnoses and applying treatment um, lacks the humanity that uh, um, official officially uh, I, I I think the people who work in the profession of psychiatry are compassionate in the main they are wonderful people and they are working in great in very difficult circumstances. But if you read the psychiatric journals, which I still receive, um, they are very dry uh, and almost, um, I would say, they, 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 except in rare cases, you get 
you get the feeling that people are doing research and writing papers, presumably to benefit their academic careers and maybe their professional careers. Uh, as indeed, when I was at a trainee level, we were obliged to undertake uh, research of some kind and get published, um, even though I could never think of a way that, that doing that actually helped anybody, you know, except in terms of professional career promotion. Um, so I actually <laughs> never did, uh, after four years of spending a day a week on psychiatry <laughs> research, I never published a word because I couldn't just commit to a project I, could, I thought would be actually useful, beneficial. So is that what so it is? My professor that... obviously thought thought I was you know hopeless, but uh, but I, subsequently I've written more words than anyone else I can think of. <laughs> I've written you know five or six books and four or five uh, papers on spirituality and psychiatry on wisdom. I just published a paper uh, very recently called um, um, Philosophy and Psychology Engaged. Yeah, and I and that's lead, lead, leading to a book I've just finished writing called "The Marriage of Philosophy and Psychology," and it's about partly about how young people, well, you you'd come into this category, seek to to train in psychology and philosophy uh, because they want to find out about themselves and other people and how to live a good life, a useful life, make a contribution, but that's not actually necessarily what they get taught. No, not even close. I don't know what your experience is about like that, whether you close. went into psychology thinking and hoping for one thing and, and did that match up with what you actually got? So I think I was a little backwards into it. I was a, uh, I was a personal trainer before this, uh, so dealing with people a lot every day. And I think if you start to uh, – if you take somebody who isn't 100% comfortable with themselves, especially with the way they look, they, they tend to when – you, when you touch on that and you start to change it, they open up more. They start to tell you about their life. Uh, you become like the, it's sort of that hairdresser sense where people start to discuss, yeah, like their life with you, and then it gets personal, gets incredibly personal. And once yeah. again, just uh, exactly what you said before, you become incredibly empathetic. Uh, I yeah. think some people have it and some don't. And and I started steering more towards that side of it. So when you get into psych, when I got into psychology, you you do go on the basis that you are going to help people, like. People yeah. are the, the key, uh, and this is why you're getting into it. Uh, exactly as you said, as soon as you start to study, yeah. it, it changes. It is, a, it is quite tick the box, get them in, yeah. get them out. Yeah. Yeah. This is their problem. This is how you fix it. Scoot them on their way type thing. I think it's, uh, yeah. it's even like, like I said, me just doing my undergrad, it is very apparent already that uh, – that is the way they that want to steer it, uh, and and yeah. that's the direction it will be heading into the future. Yeah. Where it's uh, yeah. you can't get into psychology and not care about the people you deal with, uh, but I think they want to breed a um, breed the future the future psychologists and and yada yada as so similar to GPs where you go see a GP, you're in there for eight minutes, uh, and then they boot you out with some tablets in your hand. I think. Uh, yeah. I think it's a, a Band-Aid solution um, for people who can't have a Band-Aid solution to fix their life. Yeah. Um, especially with now with today's problems, uh, you, know, the, you know, the increasing use of uh, social media, um, yeah. this, this expectation of how your life is and how your life should be. 
Uh, it's very um, it's increasing the amount of people who need help with their you know their mental health. They need to learn steps to improve it and to make it better. And and you're getting sent out there as a psychologist, uh, ill-equipped. Um, so yeah, they're they're kind of under undercutting it all. Uh, you know, I tell people that I study psychology and it's a bit of a, a bit of an arse degree. They, you know what I mean? They, they don't take it as serious. It's not, you're not an engineer. You're not a, you know, yada, yada. So, uh, it's even like looked at like that where it's like, oh, you, you're just going to talk to people all day and you're like, that's, that's it. Whatever, whatever you think is going to happen. That's, that's what it is. So, well, the, the, um, the webinar um, I just did the other day, the title of my talk was something like Back from the Brink of Disaster, Philosophy and Psychology to the Rescue. Yeah. So it's about expanding the remit, if you like, of, uh, of what is psychology about and philosophy, if you like. Or I can say more about psychology perhaps uh, now because if you look at the – world that i mean young people are having to to grow up in and deal with it's different from when i was um you know young a teenager a young adult uh so we have currently a covid19 pandemic but we also have global warming eco destruction and we also have a thermonuclear threat that is growing undoubtedly um in, in this country just last week the government have decided to uh, increase our nuclear arsenal. <laughs> yeah. That's what we need more of. At, at, great, at great expense. Yeah, uh, let's not, uh, let's not, you know, uh, house the homeless. we might get uh, targeted by a nuclear threat from yeah. terrorists in, in the future. Well, yeah. Uh, so what good I wonder will having nuclear weapons uh, do if, if terrorists have got them because, you know, terrorists are not a, suitable target for nuclear weapons. Anyway, that's beside the point. It's a bit of my, you know, my, my uh, peacemaker um, hobby horse there. But, yeah. um, but uh, so there's, uh, there's all kinds of other things. I, I use a quote from uh, uh, Barack Obama's uh, book, um, A Promised Land, his fairly recent book. So he, he talks about a, a world of global supply chains, instantaneous capital transfer, social media, transnational terrorist networks, climate change, mass migration, and ever increasingly, ever increasing complexity. So he says, we will learn to live together, cooperate with one another and recognize the dignity of others or we will perish. Psychology has the job of teaching people how to learn to live together and cooperate with one another and recognize the dignity of others. It's a huge uh, responsibility and task, but that, that in my view, it's, it, you know, you can take cases one by one of people with psychological problems, but if you don't also take into account the bigger picture, yeah, then you're going to miss an opportunity to put it mildly. And, um, so I, I also, um, I also say that those problems that we've talked about, you know, COVID-19 and climate change and and warfare and refugees and all that kind of thing. Um, But the psychologists and psychiatrists and psychotherapists are dealing with another kind of epidemic, an epidemic of anxiety, an epidemic of depression. 
and an epidemic in particular of addiction disorders, not only to nicotine, alcohol, drugs, prescription drugs, recreational drugs, hard drugs, but and gambling and so on, but also work addiction, food yeah. addiction, sex addiction, shopping addiction, social media addiction. You know, there there are all kinds of addictions. And if if one comes to understand addictions from a spiritual perspective, they are all attempts to fill a, a void. That's right. And the only thing that works to fill that void is some kind of spiritual awareness or connection. You know, and that's why the 12-step method is, is successful in some cases. It's probably why uh, mindfulness-based programs uh, are helpful. Um, and I think, uh, you know, academic psychology, if you like, um, would do well to take on board the, the bigger picture and, uh, and they um, introduce a spiritual dimension to the paradigm. The paradigm, which already includes a, a physical dimension, a biological dimension, a psychological dimension, and a social dimension. So, um, so one of the early papers I wrote for a psychiatric journal was about, um, uh, well, two papers, one about uh, spirituality and psychiatry, a general introduction, and the second one about taking a spiritual history, in other words, finding out what, uh, what uh, the spiritual aspects of people's lives, um, where they're working it to help them, which they very often are, or, and where they are working you know, against them because they have a, uh, an emptiness or, or a lack of a spiritual um, dimension in their lives. You know, spirituality gives a life meaning and purpose. It's about meaning and purpose, belonging to, uh, having a sense of connection with something greater, a greater whole. Uh, it's about unity, sacred unity, if you like. Um, I know, I know, people switch. I mean, if they switch off at the word, they when they hear you're a psychologist, let me tell you, people switch off at the word, at the word, at the word spirituality too. You know, they, uh, they think it's it's sort of you know, there's no evidence. It's not evidence-based stuff. Well, there is evidence, but you have to you have to go after it as an individual. You have to set yourself the task of exploring the spiritual dimension, which I liken to a game park, an you know, a, 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 an adventure park, rather than a, you know, spirituality isn't like a thing that you that you fix and examine and and uh, dissect. It's more like a play area. You can go in and uh, and explore and discover. So I, that's that's how I sometimes try and you know kind of uh, make it appealing to people because uh, it's an it's a, actually an adventure park we're already in. You know you can't you know you might as well go looking around and finding out about it. Yeah, that's And right. there are ways to do that. Um, so I also advocate advocate something called a uh, wisdom practice routine. That's what I've come to call it. I used to call it a spiritual development program or a personal growth plan, but it's a wisdom practice, wisdom practices or spiritual exercises engaged in on a regular basis is how to explore your own spiritual dimension and that of other people. Um, so, you know, uh, I could say a bit more about that if you'd like. I mean, uh, yeah, oh, just uh, just a touch on it before you do. Like I, I definitely agree, and I think with what you're saying, do you think they're going to adopt it, or do you think it's something that someone like you has to 
really push forward and hopefully the next generation grabs it and and continues to push it forward because i don't ever see universities around the world adopting this ever uh the uh, like adopting the the spiritual side into to just a to b psychology i don't think they ever will i think it'll have to be done uh, like external because uh, as you said before like academia is incredibly rigid uh, everybody's out to prove a point they've got papers to do so they can get tenure and tenure provides them a, a life uh, because then they make yeah. money and, and whatever off it they're too focused on the that aspect of it uh, falling into the the societal norm of of having a bigger house having a bigger car and I need to do that by publishing this paper and it won't get published if I try and bring something like spirituality into it uh, because once again it isn't tangible it's not you can't grab it with your hands you can't break it down you can't dissect it so do you think it's just going to have to be something that lives on the fringe of psychology and that but also on the fringe of spirituality because uh, I've recently had a few people on I had Andrew D on and I had Sarah Maloney Andrew D is a, um, a psychic uh, and uh, yoga's uh, uh, Sarah Maloney's a, a yoga instructor who's, who's deep into the spirituality side uh, and I guess there's like there's that, that little fringe in the middle where me and them can sort of talk and, and riff it out. But on the, the, the far edges, it's like a left and right argument. It's They both don't yeah. talk to each other. They don't want to talk to each other because their side is right and the other side is wrong. So do you think it's always going to be like that or do you think it'll be adopted in the future? Well, I tend to agree that it's more like I, I, that. There's no, I have no time. Uh, I take the long view. I don't think that. Um, I mean, I've been writing about this stuff for quite a long time and thinking about it for much longer. Uh, and I, I, I think your assessment is probably correct, as we are now, that um, for the foreseeable future, academic departments are not going to change. But change. Uh, complete change, paradigm shifts do come sometimes happen. Um, uh, you know, when Einstein published his theories, people had to think very differently about physics. And so, you know, it's not impossible. And I, I would be hopeful that whatever the way forward, whether it be a mainstream or not, it'll certainly not be to start with. Actually, there are university departments of things like transpersonal psychology, which, um, uh, you know, one or two. There are, I, I'm aware of one in the UK, I think, um, uh, and uh, who, who do talk, they don't use the term spirituality, but they that's the ballpark they are in, holistic psychology. And, and to some extent, positive psychology is, is in that ballpark also. Um, so... Uh, and the other thing that's positive, um, which I've mentioned in my 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 late latest book, and which uh, is called uh, the Big Book of Wisdom. What is it? Why do we need it? And how to get it? So wisdom uh, is uh, what's going on in schools. I mean, schools. Some schools are teaching meditation. Uh, they call it stilling in some of the schools, um, and um, they teach character education. Uh, I was for a while a school governor of a school where they teach character education as a main element of the curriculum. And so um, so there is, an, there is a sense in which there's movement yeah. in a good direction. But um, 
obviously my uh, sense is that it needs individuals to take uh, an interest and work on their own personal development and spiritual development um, getting what help and teaching they can from other people and maybe you know within uh, I, you know within the university departments obviously it's more difficult perhaps when people are not physically meeting together or uh, it's difficult to meet in s small groups and so on but actually forming little um, meditation groups and uh, and discussion groups about uh, so alongside meditation contemplation or reflective practice i think these two things go together and um there is a kind of evolutionary energy i think i don't think so psychological evolution is um uh it, you know i think it happens at a, not at a rapid pace um and one needs patience and perseverance in terms of one's own personal development and also in terms of of human humanity's development i think you know humanity is at, in a very early adolescence if you like mm. and whether it self-destructs before it gets a chance to reach an adult sort of maturity remains to be seen uh um and being distracted by an animal is it an animal behind you on the couch there that's uh that's my partner she's uh she's currently oh, uh, she's the I she's under a blanket. It's uh, it's winter here, it so it's very cool. Or something, but yeah, sorry. no, no, no. It's just my. She's on the lounge yeah. with the the blanket on. Uh, she's yeah, she's watching a lecture at the moment. So, okay, so uh, say hi. And, uh, <laughs> we'll do everything. Okay, hey, so real life steps in. Mary said hi. <laughs> she said hi. <laughs> what is her name? Uh, Mem. Oh, Marianne. But uh, we uh, like everyone calls her Mem. M E M. Uh, lovely, great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hi. I yeah. she's waving. Great. <laughs> Sorry to embarrass you. Yeah. So she, <laughs> okay. She, so we where were we? Ahead. Yeah. So we were talking about how the future is going to unfold. I I really don't know, but I I have a this tr tremendous sense of optimism. I don't know. It it isn't necessarily rational, but it is about this sense of a. Um, I suppose I have a sense of a loving universe ultimately. Yeah, and uh, and you know, I sometimes use the word God. Why not? Um, I've been going. I, I resumed Christian worship uh, some years ago, and I, I, you know, I, I probably don't have a a view of Christianity that I certainly have a different one from when I was young, yeah. and I don't probably have one that fits entirely accurately with, you know, church authorities. Um, but I do have a sense of relationship with a divine something. Yeah, same. I agree. Uh, and a, a, a Holy Spirit, if you like, yeah. uh, talking in terms of a, a personal connection through my, what I call spiritual self or wisdom mind or soul um, with this overarching spirit or cosmic energy or cosmic intelligence or or something uh, and that it's through that link between the individual and the whole that we are all connected and we are all connected not only to each other to everybody who's ever lived to everybody who will live but also to nature to the planet to life to um to the universe really so this is what this wonderful seamlessness the sacred 
whole, which informs my uh, spirituality, my my being, really, and everyone's, I think. And it, and it's exploring that. It's it's discovering that that um, I think is is one of psychology's central tasks. Yeah, it definitely has to go a little bit deeper. Um, I think. I think that the the rigid sense of it has been because it's it's what we know, and it kind of works, and and then trying to implement it across the world. Uh, I I don't know a person who doesn't have mental health issues. Everybody has a little bit of something going on, whether it be anxiety or you know some sort of stress disorder or whatever it may be. Uh, so I think what we're doing right now just isn't covering it. So there has to be a sense of this adoption of of, of spirituality um, to dig a little deeper. Um, I also agree with you with the uh, in the sense of God. I'm a, no way religious, but I do believe that there is a there's something. Yeah. That, once again, it's I uh, I like to use like the term. It's it's like a universal power uh, where everything is kept in balance perfect balance uh and then we're just a part of that and in, in like varying levels so you know at individual level at a community you know and so on and so on a humanity level that everything is balanced and and uh and the way it's supposed to be um what got you back into it was there a time when you you found yourself obviously you said you were you went to whether the church when you were younger did you did yeah. that somehow fall off because of the way they teach spirituality through the churches? Uh, and then as you grew older, you you readopted it, but in your own sense of the word, or was it something you sort of held on to, uh, and then just cut away the edges? Yeah, um, right. So I had uh, I became religious as a schoolboy. I had a wonderful uh, teacher, scripture teacher. Um, so the Bible made sense, how the Old Testament leads into the New Testament, how the old Ten Commandments lead to the commandments of love, loving God, loving your neighbor, and loving yourself. Loving yourself is actually a good trick to learn. So um, I left school, and uh, I started attending my local church, in the town I was living in by my parents and it was empty, you know, four or five people would turn up and everything would be very dull. It didn't have any life. So I just stopped going there. Um, And then I got it, you know, I was a medical student. I would have said from then on that medicine was my religion. You know, it was the main focus of my whatever spiritual life I had. Um, But I have to say that, um, I wasn't very, <laughs> I had a good life, a good fun life, but I wasn't very spiritual in those days, particularly, <laughs> um, uh, uh, all that. But um, I might have to edit some of that out of my autobiography. I yeah, that's right. We'll uh, leave that uh, part out. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so um, as I say, I went overseas and I didn't feel like I was part of any religious community Although, I, as I said, I spent some time with, with Buddhists, uh, but I didn't feel like I would join as a Buddhist, become a Buddhist. I didn't think that would ha- happen. 
Anyway, after I came back to the, to England, I was I was uh, I didn't work for well over a year. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't I, I you know I trained as a psychiatrist in Australia, but I hadn't qualified, and I um, came back uh, to the UK, and uh, I was sort of traveling around the country, and I spent some time in a Buddhist retreat center, and I was sitting in meditation one day. And the Lord's Prayer started whirring around in my head, and some of the hymns that I had uh, been singing as a, you know, known from childhood. And uh, I thought, well, I'm, I'm look around me at the Buddha images, etc. I thought I'm in the wrong place, you know. <laughs> yeah. But at that time, I was, I was so deeply into the spiritual way that I had even thought of becoming a religious, you know, becoming a monk. But I thought, well, I can't become a Buddhist monk. And I didn't know anything about Christian monks at that stage, monasteries and things like that. Yeah. So, um, and then, um, and then I had a kind of um, awakening moment where a voice, as it were, a voice. It wasn't a voice, but it felt like a voice in my head that wasn't me. Said, um, it said, I, I can remember it verbatim. It said, um, uh, "You are a psychiatrist, Larry. That's what you have trained to do. Go and do that." And so I went, I was in the north of England, I went back to London, and the following day I looked in the medical journal ads for jobs, and there was a psychiatry training post advertised, and I knew it would be mine, and I went to see the professor and said, look, I've done this bit of training, and I'm thinking of applying to come and finish it off with you. And he said, do apply. And so I did that. And then, um, so I was involved in working around in Southwest London area and uh, I needed at some point to buy a house or rent a house or buy a house. And uh, I bought a house and it was quite near a church. Um, and it was a big old church. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll go in there one day and have a look around, maybe go to a Sunday service. You know, I hadn't felt particularly like resuming religion again. But I just thought, well, it's in my neighborhood. I'll meet some of my neighbors and all that. And today I decided to go. I walked down to the church. It was only a one-minute walk, and I was, I was uh, so nearby. I didn't, leave it to, I didn't leave home till 5 to 10 or whatever time the service started. And when I got in, the place was packed. You couldn't hardly get in. Yeah. And I managed to find a little space right near the back. And as soon as I sat, we all stood up again, and the, the choir came in, procession, the organ picked up. And at the end of this procession, there was a bishop, and a bishop has a, a crozier, you know, a, a shepherd's crook. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm Larry the Lamb, right? Yeah. So I immediately thought, oh, I'm being pulled back by the shepherd into the flock. And uh, it happened that he was there to bless the church because it had been damaged by lightning strike, and it had been repaired, and he came to re-bless the church. Yeah. But I didn't know that. I just had this great sense that, and it was really, you know, struck heart deep in my heart. I was back, and but actually, I le I left that place quite soon after. I didn't continue worshiping there. I came to live in the town I now live in. So this was in the late eighties, and um, there's a beautiful church here. It's built in the twelfth century, and uh, I started to go there to services once in a while. You know, just maybe once a month or whatever. Um, and after a year or two, somebody, you know, said, well, you're the sort of person we could do with on the church council. 
and just little by little i got drawn into to going and uh and now it's very much part of uh, my life and my wife's life i mean we do services on but uh, we're going back for sunday service next sunday for the first time palm sunday yeah that's uh i think it'd be hard for you right like i said it's uh it being something like so structured and, and regimented, like um, the the psychology side of things, and then having that that openness and that 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 type of free will of of exploring your options in terms of like choosing a religious thing, but then that I think it's sort of uh, I had a chat with my friends about it the other day, the free will versus the uh, the set path, but it seems yeah. to be like you're always sort of like destined to go into these things, right? Like you'll you'll in a sense, destined to do both of them. Yeah. Do you believe Do you believe it's a, a path type thing or do you think it's a free will? Do you think you just you were given the options and you decided or do you think this was, this was Larry from day one? That's a, that's a very good question. I feel liberated, feel free, and I also feel obedient to something I don't understand. And it may be a path, but it's not a path that I can see, you know, ahead of me. Many of the turns in the path or the, you know, the things that have come about have been surprises. Um, uh, there have been many, what you might call synchronicities, many meaningful coincidences that have helped me think, oh, I'm, this is correct. I'm in the right place. I'm doing the right thing. Um, so, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't like the idea of belief, the word, I, I, I kind of, beliefs, I think are ego structures in a way, they are kind of attachments that people, um, get into difficulties about. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say I believe anything. I, I'm just open to how things are, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so, um and there are some things i know through experience that i can't necessarily uh, get you know i can't say i have the proof i have any proof about this I, I i just say but why don't you look into it for yourself you know this is what also the buddhist taught you know don't take what i say what the buddha says explore it, you know, experiment, expand your own uh, experience and understanding and and use what we say maybe as a guide to that. But, you know, don't be, you know, if it doesn't work for you, that's fine, you know. Mm. I think uh, I think that's the scary part about spirituality, right? Uh, it's a, if we're going to use the term path, it's a path not set out for anybody else but yourself. And uh, humans are, are very tribal. Uh, they like being around things that make them feel safe. Uh, and then there's always that uh, that old prob- proverb of uh, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. So taking that path is a path that you can only do by yourself. Uh, do you think that's why people struggle with spirituality so much? I don't know. I'd like, I rem- you remind me that uh, uh, one of the Buddhist teachers I encountered along the way said um it is scary it's like jumping out of an airplane and realizing you haven't got a parachute yeah but then you look down and you realize there's no earth oh 
It's that just is, free fall. That is good. Yeah, it's just free fall. And the other, the other Buddhist uh, kind of story that I like is this: that okay, so the world is full of uh, you know, there's the terrain is is rocky and the uh, sharp uh, rocks under your feet. So you don't have to carpet the whole world. You only have to fashion a strong and comfortable pair of slippers for yourself. You know, you have to yeah. do your own stuff. You can't do everybody's, uh, you can't do anybody else's spirituality for them. So like you have to have a kind of faith that as you develop your own um, spiritual awareness and, and shift uh, forwards on this uh, stages of, of development that I refer to in my books and articles and things uh, and my blog, which I write for psychology today and uh, the website of psychology today um, uh, that as you go forward um, in, in, uh, in these uh, in, in this, on this sort of pathway, if you like, um, you have to have confidence that where that what you're doing is of benefit to others. You know, that the more, the less you are uh, enthralled to secular, worldly, materialist, commercial uh, values, power over people, possessions, wealth, status, um, fame, and stuff like that, the kind of stuff that, you know, kind of our culture really does pr promote actively and also subliminally. Uh, but as, as you are able to let go of those priorities and adopt the more, what I call spiritual values of, uh, of wisdom and kindness and compassion and generosity, honesty, humility, frugality. So frugality where you, you get what you need, but you don't get stuff, you, you know, you don't uh, over, um, stock on stuff that you don't need or is is not a of genuine sort of authentic value. So the more you adopt these different values, the more uh, the, the, the the more you are actually benefiting people around you and people in your community, and indeed people at large, people throughout the world. Yeah. Do you think? Um... And and. Sorry, you go. Sorry, I was just going to add to because you you were talking about the scariness. I don't feel any fear. Um, I think it's just stepping I off. I don't the feel ledge, any right? fear. I think it's yeah. the, it's that initial step that is a scary part. Like going beyond that initial step, that's when you start to well, your path starts to unlock yep. a little more. It's just opening the door to get on that yeah. path that is a scary part. Is that correct? Well. You've got to be lucky, I guess, or or blessed, and find others who do who will do it with you. Find a community that you know can just be one other person, spiritual friends, you could say. Um, uh, the uh, some of the Buddhists call it the sangha, the the community of spiritually minded people. But you just need to find some support there. Maybe a teacher if you can find a teacher, meditation teachers. A guru, if you like, um, mentor, um, but uh, like, there's plenty of instruction. I mean, there's plenty of books, and there's you know, there's all the all the wisdom literature in the world, and poetry, and uh, and uh, 
and 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 scripture you know bibles and and uh, qurans and uh, and the sayings of the buddha and the Tao Te ching and all of that i mean i've 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 a library here there's countless spiritual books you know wisdom books wisdom literature um and uh, and i've written a few so uh, you know it's there is there is plenty of instruction and after a bit you realize well you're not alone you know you might feel like you're alone but you're you're not you might feel like you stand out you're on the margins but actually you're not you're a part of a a timeless mainstream goes back to the dawn of humanity and the people who first by oral tradition um you know the hindu upanishads which which are very ancient and then were eventually written down and the uh, the Bhagavad Gita and so on and so on. The, the tradition is long and and they all all these the Sufi tradition they all map onto each other these spiritual traditions. And uh, what I've tried to do is write a kind of more secular version. Yeah. Uh, but whatever I've write and 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 trying to use you know language that people uh, don't necessarily. Um, find off-putting. You know, I try to avoid using the word God in my books, for yeah. instance. Uh, even though I wrote a book which was called Much Ado About Something, we were talking about that something, yeah. uh, for Christian uh, for a Christian publisher, I, I still find it, you know, the word God has so much baggage. Yeah, that's it. correct. I think it was, I think it's been damaged it's, it's by It's quite a good one to, to avoid. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, so I think that's where, like, the I think there's a lot of hesitance towards it as well. The the as soon as you mention God or spirituality, it's immediately attached to religion. Uh, religion, yeah, as good as it may be for some, it is incredibly horrible for others. So I think yeah. as soon as you start to mention all of this, like you said, if you, if you can avoid those key words that people are just going to lock onto. Yeah, but there's there's not going to be a change in it. And I think there's a there's an aspect of even in in the the religious world where there's people who are in it for the good, and who want to spread this spirituality, and then there's people out there who are just going to abuse it. Um, but just same with the the spiritual world in itself. Uh, as I was saying to you before, even me talking to some of them, it's some of them uh they've used spirituality to to heal themselves from uh from whatever it may be some you know childhood trauma some so anything you know the name the name and as soon as i say i'm studying psychology like the walls come up you don't know anything you're an idiot you you've been indoctrinated like there's that that hesitation to, for it to to mix uh and there's a a big sense of ego attached to it that limits people from like pushing forward with with uh, with learning um with your books is it is it purely based on on your learnings and do you word it in a sense that it's this is my path this is what i did to reach where i am or is it just a, a, a collective like collective stories from around the world where you've heard things and you've uh, you've applied them oh they're very definitely the ideas i have been developing working on for a long time yeah um but they are developments in some cases of ideas put forward first by other people. Yeah. So um, have you heard of James Fowler? I've heard of James, James Fowler. Fowler. 1981 book, Six Stages of Faith. Yeah. So I've, I've developed Fowler's stages and I've written much more than he ever did about the later stages, six, five and six. 
and I've written much more than he ever did about transition, how you go from one stage into the next stage, yeah. how people how people evolve. Uh, and um, something I'm quite pleased with, something I developed in the 80s and early 90s, which I don't think as I've seen anywhere else, is um, a, a scheme about psychological healing, uh, emotional healing, how our emotions heal, and with the healing automatically comes growth. And um, I could just say a little bit about that because um, I think it's a, I think it was a very valuable insight for my, me to develop. I tried to get it published. I tried, I wrote it in a whole number of different ways, sent it to psychology journals, psychiatry journals. They all said, where is your evidence? Yeah, you know, we're not right. going to publish this. Where yeah. is your evidence? I said, no, it's a theory. You know, you publish a yeah. theory and then people start looking for the evidence. Yeah, that's right. But no, it was no. So I, uh, that's partly why I wrote one of my early books. I, I wrote a book called Happiness. That, um, and um, uh, I wrote it under, I used a pen name in those days, Patrick Whiteside. And, uh, and in that, I f- it was the first time I propounded this idea. And just, I have to go through it quite simply and quickly, but the idea is that there are, um, uh, and I guess, I guess there's a Buddhist influence in this. The idea is, is that emotional pain is based on reaction to threat and loss. Yeah. Threat, threat of loss. So it's all down to loss. Well, you, you, you're not vulnerable to loss until you're attached, until you're emotionally invested in something. Yeah. And equally aversion that is to say a negative is a negative attachment so every time you're attached to something you're 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 averse to losing it yeah. every time you hate something you're attached to the idea of not being around it you know so they kind of go together so um so then okay so you you attach to something and it can be a thing an object a precious object it can be a person a place an activity it can be uh, um, an idea, an ideology, a, a belief, a religious belief, a belief system. It can be something you've created in your own imagination. You know, you can be averse to the idea that um, a bomb is going to drop on my house today, even though, you know, obviously it's not very likely yeah, you, you've right. made that up. I think. So, um, so, so you start off with the attachment, and then what happens? Well, immediately you set up the circumstances for anxiety the 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 threat of loss and bewilderment uh, and doubt those three kind of negative or painful emotions arise now for each painful emotion i'm saying there's a pain-free or opposite or complement so um so bewilderment the opposite is clarity, clear-mindedness, anxiety, calm, doubt, certainty. And then when the loss becomes more threatening and actually starts happening, uh, anger is one of the reactions to that. So that's another and powerful response. Somebody's, somebody's taking something from you or... Um, uh, somebody's attacking your ideas you believe in this and they they're arguing against you uh 
And then when the loss starts to become real and you can't prevent it, or you get the feeling that it's that whatever it is is slipping away from you, then you start to feel shame and maybe guilt. You feel responsible. Yeah. And then finally, when the loss is happening and you can't prevent it, you feel sadness. So the alternatives to anger is acceptance or acquiescence. The shame, the opposite of shame, or is is a feeling of worth and self worth. Uh, the opposite of guilt is innocence or purity, and the opposite of sadness is joy or happiness. So there's this eightfold spectrum, if you like, of of I call them cognitive emotional pairs. Now, when you lose something, or when you let go of the attachment to something, which is even more important, or equally the aversion to something, in other words, when you become friends with your enemy, uh, or when you forgive, um, then the process, it's like a spectrum, they're all interrelated. So you go right through the spectrum of feelings. You may not feel them all, or you may feel them all confused and jumbled together, or you may feel them all repeating each other, you know, in a kind of repetitive spiral, depends on intensity and so on. But ultimately, the point is you go through bewilderment, anxiety, doubt, anger, shame, and guilt, and end up, as you let go finally, as you release through catharsis, through tears and crying, or rage, or whatever it is, you go, they simmer down. The energy goes out of the system, and you come down back to, uh, uh, to, to kind of contentment. You know, you've given up on wanting, on desire, and you've got contentment, satisfaction, and clarity of mind, and calmness, and certainty, and acceptance, and a sense of worth, and, and value, and being valued, of innocence, and of joy. Now, that's where psychology needs to go, isn't it? That's part of what positive psychology is about. Um, but I don't remember reading anywhere else that that's the outcome of a successful grieving process, emotional healing process, that the you let go of the attachment and you become whole again. And your energies simmer down just, and, and you can, you can uh, help this. You can foster this process of healing through meditation practice because that's exactly what you're doing. You're calming down the energy uh, levels of your presumably amygdala or whatever part of the brain it's working in, and um, and you you adopt particularly calm, and you find your way to contentment and acceptance and all those others. So there's a there's a process, and it leaves you not just whole and healed, but more mature, more a little bit wiser, better able to live in the moment because you're less anxious about what may happen. You're less fearful. Uh, you're less regretting, regret, uh, full of regret about what has happened. You're more focused on the here and now, and you're more resilient. You're more courageous. You're more uh, spontaneous. You can uh, you you feel free, uh, much more free, and so on. So actually, this is all about growing through suffering, and not by not grow, not trying to spend your life to avoiding suffering. It's a complete shift of emphasis. Yeah, uh, but it, nobody wants to feel bad. That's a problem, and I, I think what they don't realize is the avoidance of feeling bad uh, just uh, extends feeling bad. Um, if yeah. you if you really put it I, off, I say it like this. I say it like this: the problem is not feeling bad. The problem is feeling bad about feeling bad. That's right. That's that's spot on, though. 
And uh, mm. but I think we've all seen it though, and it's very hard. I think it's at that time it is impossible to go take a step back and sit in it and just and really not appreciate it, but just just bask in it a little bit and 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 feel those different feelings, all those things that you've listed off. Feel them, absorb them. Yeah, you know, break them down. But it's once again, I think it's something that needs to be adopted very early before, like. Uh, like pre-event, what what it may be, a breakup, uh, a loss of a family member, you know, uh, you know, name it whatever it is. It's something that needs to be taught much earlier on because uh, I think it's one of those things. If you try and tell somebody to to sit in the pain of something as they're going through it, they're just going to tell you to bugger off. Well, I like to say sometimes the pain is the medicine. The pain yeah. is the medicine, and it's going to get better. But maybe it'll get worse, or it'll feel worse before it gets better. Yeah. And if if you can, as it were, like hold somebody's hand through that process, um, you know, then it's 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 doable. But you have to share it with them. I'd I'd just say a little bit about compassion. Yeah. Compassion. Okay, it's from a Latin word, two words, with feeling. You, you're feeling with, you're actually suffering with. So it's about sharing a person's suffering. So when I was a trainee psychiatrist, um, we had um, uh, one ward full of, I was sent to work on this ward where it was full of people who are basically no hopers. They were, well, and one particular man was miserable from morning to night. He would cry, weep, and he would say very few incoherent words except, help me, oh God, help me, or please help me. And um, he was very well known. All the treatments had been tried. Nothing had worked on him. And he'd been like that for a long time. And I felt awful. Didn't know what to do to help him. And I happened to be talking to a a Tibetan Buddhist monk around that time, having meetings with him. And I, I started to tell him about this. And he said, where is the suffering, Larry? And I said, well, it's, you know, it's in that ward. It's full of all these people who are suffering. He said, no, no, Larry, where is the suffering? And eventually I realized, oh, I said, it's here, you know, pointing to my heart. I said, the suffering is here. He says, yes. And then he said, and why are you suffering? And I thought about it. I said, well, because I care. He said, yes. He says, that's compassion. You, it, it hurts, and it hurts because yeah. you care. And it completely changed my attitude to, to that. It made me realize that compassion was part of who I am. And I, it wasn't something I could, you know, uh, ignore, or it was something I could use. Yeah. It was something I could use to tell me about, you know, what I could cope with and what I couldn't cope with and what my own boundaries were with regard to the kind of work I was doing. And uh, astonishingly, this fellow, see, I, when I went to see him again soon after, he seemed to recognize something had changed because I was standing there. We were actually um, out in the open on this particular occasion with a with great uh, uh, fencing around, which because it was a locked uh, u- unit. Um, and um, he, he had never spoken any coherent, anything coherent, except, as I say, God help me, et cetera. 
And uh, anyway, he as I, he could see I was puzzled, and I was still trying to think of the right thing to say to him to try and engage with him. And he he sort of tapped me on the shoulder. And he said, "Come on," he said, "Let's go and have a cup of tea." God save the queen. <laughs> and then we, he led me inside. He was rescuing me, you know. Yeah. And um, I think when he said God save the queen, it was recognition that I was British because I was in Australia, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, you know, who knows what was going on exactly. But what I do know was that I learned about uh, the inevitability of compassion and that you suffer. You cannot avoid sharing in the suffering of others and the more you try and um just ignore it or or somehow you know numb yourself to it it doesn't work and i think that's what a lot of people get into into you know drugs and alcohol and, and other addictions for because they feel for other people and they don't they can't cope with it and it, it's too painful to watch you know refugee children being drowned in the sea and or or uh, whatever else terrible things are happen happening um it's too much so they say oh, you know let's let's numb myself i've got to numb this i've got to find a distraction yeah and okay. actually the thing you have to do is just acknowledge that you do we do we are connected we feel pain each other's pain it can't be helped yeah uh, the uh not feeling anything is better than feeling anything type type thing uh, blocking it out is easier than dealing with it. That's uh, that is something that and I think maybe will that's with why everybody. psychology and psychiatry have become academic in the sense of uh, of dry and 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 a, a drift a drift of real life. Yeah, because it's protecting people from actually feeling the the pain, uh, which is enormous uh, that they're having to deal with day after day. It's actually a very good point, Larry. That's uh, that's that's pretty spot on. Um, now that you put it that way, it kind of makes it a little bit more sense why it is so dry. Um, you definitely see a lot of people go through it and they can't handle it. Um, I've spoken to uh, psychologists in various levels and, and various um, various different fields or, or whatever, what have you, um, and some of them are broken. And I think it's that uh, they got in it to to help and to to make change. Uh, and then that change becomes a little overwhelming because there is yeah. a lot of a lot of hurt and suffering out there, and then it is that immediate result afterwards of of trying to mask it or cover it, uh, whether it be alcohol or drugs or, um, but they 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 break at the end of it, and I think what you're exactly what you're saying doesn't prepare future students for it because it denies them the ability to to really look inside and go, you are going to feel things and you are going yeah. to have to acknowledge it and sit with it and, and, and really take it all in. Cause if you don't, yeah. it'll break you. Uh, you don't hear that. Yeah. You don't hear any of that. I've never heard it in any of my classes. <laughs> well, you also have to say, and you can honor yourselves for that. You yeah. Know, what you're doing is a noble undertaking and humanity depends upon people like you doing things like that. Yeah. If it's to survive, I mean, you know, the TV shows about the uh, frontline staff in hospitals and so on, looking after very sick uh, COVID patients, uh, and they are being broken by it, and and they are being terrified. You know, uh, I've got to go into work, and I wake up in fear because I think I might get COVID and die, and um, and yet I've got to go, and I will go, and they do go, you know. 
and uh, and then they cry their eyes out on the way home, etc., and so on, and they cry at work and so on, and they, it's, you know, it's extreme. It's very extreme, and um, uh, you know, one can only, in a way, feel for them, and and uh, as we as we have done, honor them, clap for them, etc., and um, uh, but I, there's a and and people in lockdown the same having all kinds of worries and anxieties raised. And I, I wonder if all this isn't going to prompt a more um, wisdom, a better, you know, more of a wisdom approach or a spiritual approach to, to understanding life and living life. I, I would hope it might. Um, I mean, the very fact that, you know, we're talking about all this stuff is, is a pretty good sign. And there are quite a few other people who've been in taking an interest in, uh, you know, interviewing me and stuff like that. And I think, and, re and presumably uh, reading and writing, uh, reading stuff I've written because that's how they find out about me, you know, so I think it's possible to be hopeful. Um, uh, as you say, the, the universe has a way of self-correcting, you that's know, right. a kind of, uh, um, uh, uh, and maybe this is it. Maybe it's correcting us from, uh, Overusing, over you know, expelling greenhouse gases into the atmosphere by uh, all the planes being grounded and so on and so on. I mean, uh, but we have to the lessons to be learned, and hopefully they will be. Hopefully we listen. I think that's a thing. I think as much as it does overcorrect itself, it does give us warnings. It lets us know we can we think it and we feel it every day that something is is incredibly wrong. Something is very, very yeah. wrong with the way we are headed and the way we are living. And uh, it's not like yeah. we don't get warnings. I think even just using coronavirus as an example and, and to ignore the fact that it is one hell of a warning of like, we have to change. That has to be yeah. from the top down, a uh, very big change in, in the way we do things and from the bottom up in the way we think and, and we see each other's uh, each other around us. Um, there has to be change, uh, I guess, at the end of the day. Otherwise, it's just going to keep happening, and the and the universe will flatten it out and 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 continue to do it. And I don't know, once again, it's like how many times does it need to happen for us to keep asking why? And then we need to take a good, long, hard look at ourselves and and maybe assume it's us. Amen. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, Adi, Larry, I'm not going to take up too much of your time. Um, thank you so much. You're a very wise man. Uh, my brain is going 100 miles an hour right now trying to absorb some of the things you said, and I definitely will be watching this back several times to try and well, take it all in. See if, you, see if you can get hold of a copy of uh, my book because it'll make it easier for you to work through what I've been talking about. Yeah, I will. I'll, uh, I'll grab it after this. And uh, if you have any difficulties getting hold of a copy in Australia, let me know. I'll send one out to you. Oh, legend. That's awesome. That's, uh, that's great. Um, usually at the end of a, a show, we do a plug. So obviously uh, the big book of wisdom. Yeah. Uh, what else? The, little book, the, li the little book of wisdom is coming out in August. Cool little. I wrote the little book of wisdom <laughs> uh, to, to go with it. So for people who can you know, have a shorter attention span. It's a I'll probably, I'll probably get that one. <laughs> I got to, I got the, I'll go on those goldfish brains. Now I'll, uh, I'll definitely get that. I'll, um, I'll jump online after this and, and see what I can get my hands on. 
Uh, everybody who's who's listening or, or watching, I'll have all of Larry's links below uh, when I do post this. So go check him out. He's a, a very wise man. Uh, Larry, anything you want to leave with? Just uh, namaste, shalom, God bless you. Thank you very much. And Larry, have a great day, my friend. Thank you. See you later, buddy. Ooh, that was Larry. Larry is probably one of the smartest people I've ever spoken to. I wasn't even talking to you. The stream's not finished, man. <laughs> Why do I say it? He's just really well adjusted. He's, uh, he's, it's not just uh, like I've been through academia and I'm smarter than you. Uh, like he took his time to talk to a dummy and I appreciate that. I think it's a good thing. And he was very patient and he's very humble. So uh, thank you, Larry. You're a legend. I'll, uh, I'll, like I said, I'll leave all these links below. Like and share the show if you want to. If you don't, just listen to it. But uh, definitely take something away from this. Uh, thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.